Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here at Gospel of Grace. Let's begin with prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, and that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We pray that as we look at this binding and loosing, you would help us to understand what it means and how we apply it. We pray that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, dear ones, last time we were in this section of Scripture that I was studying. It's a little topical message. I'm talking about what true binding and loosing is. Remember, I had three goals. Number one is I wanted to show us that we're no longer under the Mosaic Law, but that we are under the New Covenant. That was number one. Number two, I wanted to prove that because we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, neither are we under any false laws that some lawgiver like a legalist would ever put us under right and we used mark chapter 7 but now the final coup de grace i want to talk about what true binding and loosing is because you and i need to know what we are morally bound to under the new covenant and what binding and loosing truly is and so i want to put the categories up here on the screen let's talk about what binding and loosing is not and then what it is First of all, binding misunderstood by many to mean that believers have the power and authority in Jesus' name to manipulate the demonic powers. Some of you have probably heard for years, somebody will be going on a prayer walk. Sometimes it's even the entire Twin Cities. There'll be a bunch of churches who gather together, and they'll have a prayer walk. And I remember hearing one gal in particular on the radio said, yes, we're going to be going around the cities binding Satan. And so the idea is... Because we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have the authority to bind Satan in Jesus' name or to loose him, allow him to be about. And so if you're binding him, you're prohibiting him from acting. But if you're loosing him, you're allowing him to be free and to reign and to do things. But I'm going to show you that that is not what binding and loosing is. That is a misunderstanding of the terms binding and loosing in the scriptures. And so... Properly understood, binding and loosing are moral terms used regarding a person's moral obligations before God. You and I are morally bound not to murder. We're morally bound. Why? Because it says thou shall not murder. And that's not something just in the old covenant. It's also under the law of Christ or in the new covenant. Okay? So that's what being bound is about. What about being morally loose? Those are the things you're free to do that the scriptures under the new covenant have not morally bound us. For example, I remember hearing, um, any of you in here know R.C. Sproul? Anyone ever read him or listened to him? I know most of you have. R.C. Sproul gave a message once and that he talked about how he was going to move to another city, but a Christian told him that the Lord had spoken to them and said, no, you can't move to that city. The Lord said to me in a dream that you can't move there. Well, he moved there anyway. And the reason he did this is because he has moral freedom under the new covenant to go to any city he wants. Where under the new covenant does it say, thou shall not live in this city, thou must live in this city? Well, it doesn't. So you're morally loosed to do that. Now, what I want to do is talk about why we can't bind Satan. What I'm going to prove to you, let me back up. I'm going to prove to you that number, let me pull up my pointer. I'll prove to you that number one is not true. That binding and loosing has nothing to do with binding Satan so that he cannot operate or, for that matter, any other demonic being. That is not what binding is, and I'm going to prove that to you. So we're going to answer the question, why can't we bind Satan? Well, the most important text, in my opinion, that proves that you and I have no authority to go around and manipulate the demonic realm, including Satan, telling the demons what they can do or not do, The key text, in my opinion, is the book of Jude. So I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jude 5 through 7. Remember, there's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude 5 through 7. We'll read that together, and then I'll build off of that into this text that I'll put up on the screen. So Jude 5 and 7. Now, before we read, remember in Jude, the big issue is there are false teachers that Jude was contending with. What were the false teachers doing? Well, the false teachers were engaged in manipulating the angelic realm. They took it upon themselves to usurp God and his authority 
and they were bossing the angelic realm around, manipulating them. And this is something that Jude says must not be done. In fact, instead of being evidence of being a believer, those who manipulate the demonic realm, it's evidence of being an unbeliever, being characterized as an unreasoning beast. Listen to what Jude says, Jude 5 and 7. Whoops, I put up the wrong thing there. I got it in my notes. Jude 5, it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. And by the way, stop there. What does he mean, once for all, you know all things? He's talking about the gospel that's been delivered once and for all, handed down to the saints. Remember Jude 3? Uh, we have the scriptures once for all. Hand- we have to contend for the faith once and for all, handed down to the saints, right? Well, that's what he's referring to. So notice he says that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, let's stop there in verse 5 for just a moment. If you have the Net Bible, do you see in verse 5 where it says the Lord? The Net Bible translates that as Jesus. And there is a manuscript discrepancy. Many of our earliest versions have Jesus. And I think that actually should be the preferred reading. Why? Because Jesus was considered the angel of the Lord that was with the Israelites who brought them in the Exodus. He is also the one as the angel of the Lord that punished Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think Jesus is the best reading. In fact, it's the most difficult reading, which would tend to lend itself to being the likely reading as well. So more than likely, he said that Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, stop there. Why is Jude saying that? Because you had people who appeared to have faith, but all of a sudden they've departed from the doctrines of the apostles, and they start manipulating angelic beings around, showing themselves through their actions that, in fact, they're not believers at all. So the Israelites, they went through an exodus, they had a baptism, but they start acting in the wilderness like they weren't believers. What Judah's saying is you don't do the same thing. You had a salvation, and when she went through a great exodus, you were saved by the blood of the Lamb. Was the, lamb, the blood of the Lamb not applied to you by faith? Yes. And then by faith, after that, you were baptized, just as the Israelites were. Now you're in the wilderness, and you might fall just as the Israelites did. Why? Because of unbelief. Right? That's the idea. So he's warning them. Notice in verse 6, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now stop there. These angels he's referring to are the angels in Genesis 6 that left their proper domain. They were in the angelic realm, but they became humans so that they could have physical relations with women. That's what they did. And you're going to see this. Notice the proof of it. Verse 7. He says, Just as... Does everyone see the just as in verse 7? The term in Greek, hosts, just as. There's a comparison, just as. You could also render it just like. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, that's homoios, the same term that we have for homosexual, the root of that, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in understanding the punishment of eternal fire. Notice verse 7. Very important we don't miss this. Here Jude is showing that just as he's making a link between the sins of the angels and the sins of those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah engaged in sexual immorality, the angels did. In fact, he says, in the same way. So we can't miss that. Those are contextual clues that show us that Jude is linking the sins of the angels to being like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does everyone see that? So what's the problem with the angels? They left their proper abode. They Think of our vernacular in America. They didn't stay in their lane. Are you with me? It's, it's like the president wanting to take a... I'm, by the way, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just making a general statement. It'd be like the president trying to take on the role of the judiciary. He's not staying in his lane, okay? Um, It's like you and I who are working for a company trying to usurp the president and the CEO of of the company. We're not staying in our lane. 
That's exactly what these angels did. They left their proper abode and they went after women. Now, why is Jude using that example? Because there are now human beings who are false teachers that he's contending with who are not staying in their lane. They're trying to usurp God's rightful role, who uses the angelic realm for his purposes, and they're trying to usurp for themselves that role and boss the angels around. No, I'm going to bind you, Satan. I'm going to bind that demon. I'm going to tell that demon to do this. I'm going to mention that demon over here. And they're trying to manipulate the angelic realm that God alone has the authority to do. That's the connection that Jude wants us to see. And so that's why we pick it up here in verse 8. He says, yet in the same way, notice the connection, these men, those are the false teachers, also by dreaming, notice it's not revealed, this is their own dreams, false dreams, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Notice verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And he goes on. Now, what I want you to notice here in red is let's ask ourselves the question, the false teachers did what? What are the false teachers doing? That's right, they're, they're reviling, they're rejecting authority ultimately. Right, they're reviling the angelic majesties. But what does it mean to reject authority? These false teachers should be under the authority of God ultimately, but they're trying to usurp his authority. Okay, so how are they doing that? Well, they're reviling... By the way, you could also render this and by namely. You could render it what's called a concessive use of chi. So you could say rejecting authority, namely reviling angelic majesties. In other words, that would imply how they're doing it. Okay, so what does it mean to revile angelic majesties? Well, let's go to our example of the prayer walk where I heard that woman saying on the radio that they were going to go around the cities binding Satan. Does that woman have the authority to bind Satan and to tell Satan what to do? Well, if she does, that would be news to Jude and the writers of the New Covenant. Now, here's why. Notice the example in verse 9 that's given to us is Jude is going to be using a greater to lesser argument. Who's the greater? Michael the archangel. Do you and I know what's going on in the spiritual realm as, as well as Michael the archangel? No. Do we have the same authority in the angelic realm as Michael the archangel? No. Okay, so what did the Michael the archangel not do? Well, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, remember Moses was buried by God? He was never buried by the Israelites? Well, it says that he did not dare pronouncement against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in other words, Michael the archangel didn't start bossing the angels around, including Satan, but he said, may the Lord do it. He let the Lord do it. He didn't take it upon himself because that is the Lord's business alone. When we look conceptually at God's rule over the cosmos, he rules upon the earth but he also rules over the angelic realm, and he uses what's called a divine counsel. That means he uses all of the good angels and even the wicked angels for his purposes. So if Michael would butt in and start bossing other angels around, he is usurping the CEO who is over the divine counsel, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. So that's the problem with people who are trying to manipulate demons now. Or to say, I'm going to bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You hear that often. Shouldn't we just say, the Lord rebuke you. If the greater, Mark, if the greater Michael the archangel would not boss an angel around, how much less should mere mortals, you and I, not boss the angels around? Are you with me? Yes, Brian. Now... In this example, we're talking about Satan specifically. Okay, but in other places, we see Michael, who is 
actually physically battling with lesser demons. So is there a differentiation between the arguing and trying to manipulate the angels versus physically battling? Yeah, you know what, Brian, I would say is one is in Daniel chapter 10. Does everyone remember where Daniel, he had been praying and Gabriel comes to him and says he had been restrained, restrained by the prince of Persia. But all of a sudden we find out that Michael the archangel came and helped him in that battle. First of all, we don't know what happened in the divine council. That's hidden from us. What I think we could affirm is that God was the one who said, go do that. Because we have other texts, and I'll have us turn to 1 Kings 22 in a little bit. We also see it in Job 1, where God is always the one who commands his angels to do what they're to do. And even the demonic realm can't do anything unless he ordains it. You see that in Job. Satan could do nothing to Job unless God allowed it. Okay, he's completely sovereign. And he can stop any of the angelic beings from doing what they want to do. Let's take another example in Revelation 12, where Michael the archangel stands for the people of Israel in the last part of the 70th week of Daniel. There again, he's being commanded, I would infer, from God the Father to protect the people so that they're not wiped out during the time of Jacob's great distress. So here we're being in Jude, given this inside look that when they're not given a command, in this case Michael the archangel, he doesn't have the authority to take it upon himself to start manipulating the angelic realm around. Does that make sense? To see the category difference? In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. We'll, we'll turn here in just a moment to uh, 1 Kings 22, but I want to take any other comments or questions on this. No? Let's turn our... Oh, I'm sorry, Dan. Just kind of a side, maybe side issue. Just, Do you believe Scripture supports that there could be uh, fallen angels or even good angels that have uh, taken over the human form currently? Um, you know what? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know one way or the other. We know that right. um, sometimes we can entertain angels unaware. Right. Um, so what we'd have to affirm is it's possible, but we're not given any direct revelation as to they're here, they're there. Um, right. We, we, yeah. So it's okay. certainly possible. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the big thing I want you to see on this slide. Uh, yes, Laverne. Well, I'm sorry. We'll run the. We'll run the mic over to you. So. Everything that you say is recorded for posterity. Time and time and... Yeah, that's right. It can't, yeah, it can't be used against you. The Miranda rights, right? Okay, I, yeah. I um, withdraw. No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're just kidding, Laverne. <laughs> um, I just know that um, from reading in Acts how... Well, let's just take Peter's example, for instance. People of that day were very keen about angels because when they thought when Rhoda, the servant girl, answered the door and Peter was there, she ran back and told them. And would they say, oh, no, that's his angel. And so, um, yeah, we don't know what people are present, but we know that as uh, that all children are gifted with a guardian angel at birth. I mean, that's what the scripture says, that we're given guardian angels when we're born. Do you agree with that? You know, I, I would have to study that. I, I don't see evidence that every single person is given a specific guardian angel. Okay, um, I'd have to see that text that every single person is given a specific angel. There are angels that will guard over us, and he will use the angels for our purposes. But whether or not it's allotted to every single person, a specific angel, I don't think that that's specifically told. The, the worldview that I think we should get from the scriptures is that, remember Romans eight twenty eight, that God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose? That includes the angelic realm. And so what you and I can be confident in is that God will use all of the angels and even the demons for our greater good. And so we can completely trust him. And that's why, like in Hebrews four 16, we're to go before the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Because he's the one, Jesus, who's in charge of all of the angelic realm. He's the head of the divine council. And one example of this, let's, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. And I'm going to show you how God even used wicked angels like the demons for his purposes. A wicked spirit. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. 
What you're going to hear is this prophet Micaiah who saw the Lord in the heavenly realm and the Lord is going to use a spirit, an evil spirit, to lead Ahab to battle at Ramoth-Gilead to fall. And so here, God is going to accomplish his purposes by using one of his wicked angels that he is sovereign over for his purposes. So 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. Now remember, this is the prophet that never spoke anything good about Ahab. Ahab didn't like him. In fact, he was the only one who was a reliable prophet. The other prophets were false prophets who were telling Ahab exactly what did he, wanted, he wanted to hear. So notice what it says, 1 Kings twenty two nineteen says, Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Let's stop there. What's the host of heaven? That's the divine council comprised of both the good and the wicked angels. All of the angelic realm answers to him. And notice he speaks now, the Lord, in this divine council meeting. Verse 20, it says, The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. So stop there. Notice there's dialogue. There's a spiritual dialogue. And I mean spiritual in the sense that different spirits are saying different things in the divine council. Well, I could do this. Well, I could do that. Well, I, you know, how about a car accident? How about a well, chariot? Or what, you know? I mean, you can hear it probably it's going on and on, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm reading into the text a bit. But I mean, just think about it. There's a dialogue going on. Verse 21, well, now this is something that got the Lord's attention. It says, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And this says in verse 22, the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and, buy, and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Isn't that interesting? He's going to use the prophets against him. Then he said, you are to, en-, this is the Lord now. Then he said, you are to entice him also prevail, go and do so. Right there it shows that the Lord has absolute sovereignty over all of his angels, even this wicked spirit he was going to use for his purposes. Now, let's take that idea for just a moment and let's go to the new covenant. Do you remember? I'm sorry, Laverne, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come to that text too, by the way. Okay, Matthew 18.10. See that you do not disdain one of these little ones. This is Jesus speaking. Yep. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of our Father in heaven. Yeah, so again, the angels are used for our good. And that's something that we're seeing in this whole worldview. That God uses the angels to protect, to bring about his purposes... And so the idea, though, from that text to say that every single human being has their specific angel, I don't think is warranted. But so, why would they use the, I don't know the Greek for the word there. It, sound, it seems possessive. Yeah, you know what I would say is that there are certainly good angels who do protect the innocent that God uses. And so I wouldn't think that we could take from that to infer that every single human being has an angel assigned to him. That would be going, as the saying goes, a bridge too far. But what I would say is that God uses all things to work out for the good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Let's remind ourselves, too, in Matthew 18 and other places in the Gospels, the point of the children is, remember he says that unless you have the faith of a child, you will not see the kingdom of God. The issue isn't to become simpletons because we're called elsewhere to maturity. The issue was that children had no status in the eyes of the Jews. The saying that children should be seen and not heard was a saying that they would readily affirm. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus says often to his disciples who are wrangling about who's going to be the first in the kingdom, who's going to be at his right and his left, he says, unless you become like one of these children who don't have any status in the eyes of the world, they're nothing, you're not going to be a follower of me. Because in the eyes of the world, you and I are going to have status. But the point is, he's reminding also in this text in Matthew 18 that God still cares for them, that he still uses his angels to protect them. Um, let me give you another example, and I was going to point to this. 2 Corinthians 12, we know that Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. Do you remember that, Laverne? Yes. Okay, well, the thorn in the flesh, remember he prayed multiple times for that to leave him. Now, he calls this a thorn in the flesh, but it was from what? From Satan. 
That's what Paul revealed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the design of it was to keep him humble. God was using Satan to keep Paul humble. Is that for Paul's good? Is God really working out Romans 8, 28, that he's causing all things to work for the good for those who love him according to his purpose? Yes, because what happens if Paul becomes haughty? Doesn't pride precede a fall? Absolutely. God humbles the proud. But by allowing the thorn in the flesh to do that for the apostle, it was for his good. And remember, the ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of the Son so that you and I, when we die and we go to glory, one day we'll be given a resurrected body. One day we're never going to sin again. You and I will, in our glorified bodies, be those who don't rebel against our God. That's the ultimate goal, is to conform us to the image of the Son. Uh, yeah, Christy. Um, in my MacArthur study Bible, it actually addresses that pronoun there. Yeah. And it says, this does not, they're angels. This does not suggest that each believer has a personal guardian angel. Rather, the pronoun is collective and refers to the fact that believers are served by angels in general. So he's saying that that there is a collective term, not an individual term, which I think it's if, a collective if, noun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So they're continually watching the face of God so as to hear his command to them to help a believer when needed. So yeah, amen. I don't know if that helps kind of bridge those That's exactly two right. views. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Bob was just mentioning the fact that the little ones, when you're reading the Gospels, I know in Matthew and Luke. Luke for sure. Luke for sure. Yeah. The same idea is the little ones are the, the believers themselves. So think about in Matthew 25, as often as you do this, or I'm sorry, whenever you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. How many times have we heard that used for some political purpose? No, you have to take the taxes from that guy and give it to that guy because after all, when you've done it to the, one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Well, there's two problems with that. First of all, in Matthew 25, we're called to be generous with our own giving. Okay, not the money of the other guy. But second, who are the least of these, my brethren? They're, they're, they're brothers. They're sisters in the Lord. That's the least of these. That's who the children were. They're, they're believers. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, just uh, point it out. I, I know yeah. on the surface, things seem to be talking about just children. But let me yeah. show this here. Uh, Matthew 18, 1, at the time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Yep. So the issue is status. Yep. Who's greater, who's lesser, who's important? Verse 2, then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, I'm from the Home of Christian Standard Bible, unless you are converted, become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in their world, children had no status. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm hoping to be able to show a video in a few weeks that I did some years ago about the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. And it shows the love of God to go find a lost sinner who had run away and shamed the family. Yeah. And so in their mind, well, how could, why would you want to become like a child that has no status? Why did he tell them that? Right. Because they wanted to be the greatest. Exactly. And so the, the point is, God converts people that we may not approve of. Amen. Okay? Like you, you've been pointing out, tax gatherers, yeah. um, harlots, Mail. sinners, mailmen. Yeah, you may But the point is that um, the little ones are yeah. believers. Amen. And what's going to happen to the disciples through all these attacks and temptations? Right. And actually, 1 Corinthians, I'll be yeah, showing that the church world. likes to divide everybody in the same way. Right. The high-quality, greatest ones and then the ones that aren't so great. Right. But that's the whole pr problem because that's pride. It, it, uh, pride comes before the fall and so on. The point is yeah. that God is keeping us 
and allowing whatever trials, difficulties, attacks might come. Amen. So remember to, to go to him. Amen. And when people arrogate to themselves the an invitation to the divine council where they weren't invited, they're actually called blasphemers. Exactly. I'm not saying they know that that's what they're doing, but we need to get a biblical worldview. Amen. So in Job 1, Satan had to ask permission to attack Job. Amen. And so I've taught since I was in a group that used to do that, and I've written about that and got out of it. The point is, if we can't trust God to take care of us, if we have access directly to the throne of grace, if God's in charge of the divine council, why do we go to the meeting and say, you get out of here, I belong here? Right, right. That's the danger. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And um, we just finished a series on... A podcast for Critical Issues Commentary. We had yeah. 15, I think 15 videos just on this issue. Yeah. And many people really don't understand it, which is an, I didn't at one point. Yeah. But does God care about why pray? Right, right. Why right. pray if we don't think God's going to answer because he's assigned us to go to the divine council meeting and tell Satan what to do or not do? Amen. And that's what is destroying prayer hope, confidence in Christ, belief that God's going to preserve us, that he's going to sanctify us, that he's going to bring us to glory, because false teachers in America and around the world have been saying, no, you bind Satan. You tell what spirit to be over the city. You do this, you do that. And people learning this, I've never seen so many people coming to Christ and by email saying, I didn't know. I didn't realize it. That's what I was always taught, that it was my job to bind Satan. Right. And then when we humble ourselves, say, it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be as lost as anybody in the whole world. Amen. And people say, I didn't realize it, and they come to Christ. Amen. And so the point is that the little ones are believers. God will keep us. And then Matthew 18 goes into some things we've had to yeah, deal we'll with. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, Restoring absolutely. a brother. Yeah. So it's about believers, not to disparage little children. Absolutely. That's right. So what's interesting about the little children, thank you, Bob. It's a great segue. Let's think about it. Are we called to maturity in the scriptures? Yes. We're called to grow to maturity. Think about in Ephesians 4, the whole purpose of all the gifts that God gives. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as teachers. The purpose of all those gifts is so that the church, if you follow the logic, would grow to maturity. So if we're to grow to maturity, why are to be like a child? So the point, obviously, being like the child isn't to be simple, because after all, you and I are commanded by Christ through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. The answer that we're to give, to give is apologia. It's a rational response. Well, how are you called on the one hand to maturity and to be able to give a rational response, on the other hand to be a simpleton like a child who knows nothing? So the point can't be to be a simpleton that knows nothing and be like a child. The issue of the child is different. It's just as Bob said. The issue of the child is that they didn't have any status. That must be the point that Jesus is making, and it falls within the context of the disciples arguing about what? Who's going to be at the right hand? Who's going to be where? They're arguing about status. So we know that that's what the issue is. So back to your issue, Laverne, with the there. Um, Again, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but it would probably be a collective noun. And again, it's part of this worldview that we all should have is that God is going to use all of the angels and even the demonic beings for our good. Yes. And then we'll get Reba here. (laughs) no don't do that i don't want to be on record (laughs) okay okay so now oh and i need your help over there with the um uh commentary okay acts 12 15 you are out of your mind they told her this is them talking about um Peter beating yeah. the door. Okay, so yeah. the implication, Rhoda the servant girl believed that that was Peter because she recognized his voice. Yeah. So if we're going to say that 
um, that it wasn't his angel, that it was just, a, just an angel being a guardian. Um, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. So I want you to check on that, the possessive his. Is that, um, you know, in the Greek? But why would the angel sound just like the person? You know, because Rhoda thought it was yeah. him. Or maybe she looked through the door, I don't know, and well, saw someone that looked like him. Yeah, well, let's first of all take Rhoda. She's in error. Is she not? Is she, is she correct in assuming that this is an angel, or is she incorrect? She's incorrect, but she's it, incorrect. Was, it wasn't her. It was the men that, that she told that thought that. Right, but the point is, is Luke, as he's inspired by the Spirit, he's showing us that she's not reliable in her report here, that she, in some sense, is diminishing what God can do. Here, God has supernaturally allowed Peter to escape and brought him, but she can't perceive that God could do such a thing, so it must, there has to be some other explanation. And so, to me, I wouldn't go by what Rhoda is saying there, something that is reliable, even by implication, that there must be angels for every single person or look-alike angels that sound like us, etc. Um, no, Bob it was is, actually yeah. the men, when she went back and told the disciples, yeah. it's Peter. She believe, I, I believe that it reads that she believed it was Peter. And she told them, and they said no. Okay, the men then. The, yeah, the, men, the men. But the it men would be, be unreliable at this point in the, in the narrative. So do you remember when uh, Bob has mentioned numerous times, when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, they give the truth. They're not in error. Yeah. So what we don't want to do is take things, for example, that are in error that are merely, merely descriptive of what they made an error in okay. and make yeah. that prescriptive for us. Okay. Think about Saul. Saul, he conjured up the medium at Endor. Yeah. Should we do that? No. Saul, Saul did. Well, no, we don't want to do that because we're learning that this is something that you don't do. Okay? Yeah, so Samuel because, told him, why have you disturbed me? Exactly. So my point is, is when they're in unbelief, it's not something that we should emulate. They're grasping at straws. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give any credence to that view that because they are in error, therefore we should build a theology where every single person has their own angel. What I think we should do is go by the scriptures clearly declare that the whole angelic realm are going to be used for our good, Romans 8.28. He causes all things. Do all things incorporate good and wicked angels? Yes. Does it incorporate the weather? Yes. Does it incorporate viruses? Yes. Does it incorporate every molecule in the entire cosmos? Yes. Every single molecule is going to be used for your good. That's the promise that he's given. Every wicked angel, every good angel, that's the promise. And so what we're seeing, and just what Bob said, is how dare you and I go to the divine council meeting that we've never been invited to, kick the seat out from under one of the angels seated at the, the table, and say, no, nah, you're, you're bound, I'm there now. Well, no, that's, that's doing exactly what Judah's warning about, it's not staying in our lane. It's reviling angelic majesties. And so do you see then when we go on the prayer walk and we're going around the cities and we're saying, I'm going to bind this demon, I'm going to bind Satan, we don't have the authority to do that. We should do what Michael the archangel do, do, did and say, may the Lord rebuke you. We go to the Lord in prayer. Yes, Bob. As you're going through this, one of the things, and I'm somebody that was in a group that did that, yeah, yeah. So, and it was wrong to think wrongly, but it's what got me out that led me to Scripture alone. Yeah. So they revile things they do not understand. Here's why that's so important. God doesn't uh, tell us that we need to function in a realm that we're totally lost in. Right. Okay, so when we've done podcasts and YouTube, um, God isn't telling us, in order to be healed, you need to recover memories that you don't have. Yeah. That's the inner healing here. God isn't saying, in order for your city to do well, you need to know what demons over what city in there and change the cosmic furniture. Well, why would God command us to know what we can't know anyhow? Yeah, absolutely. But the false teachers actually say they have revelations right there are people who are literally gone said well i went to heaven and talked to different people and they told me this and that so that's forbidden knowledge it's so cold it's secret yeah. how how can you get healing based on a memory 
that you don't even know is a real one. Right. So what God calls us to do is to believe objective, clear, meaningful promises he gave us, trust him, go to the throne of grace, because God knows all of these things. Even Jesus Christ, who created the entire universe in his incarnation, was tempted to jump off the temple and Satan's old angels will catch you. Well, do you think Jesus has authority over angels? And if he wouldn't do it, because it was a false temptation, he came to die for sins. I'll be talking about this in the next few sermons, because we're going to talk about these rulers. Yeah. Okay. Well, he said he wouldn't do that, because it was a temptation. Yeah. Paul was tempted to pride. Job, everything he went through was for our benefit, to learn something. Amen. And so... Yes, we think things would be better if we had authority over these realms, but they really wouldn't because we don't know. Right. Amen. Well said. And so we believe the promises of God and trust him to take care of it. And it takes a while to build this worldview, but it's really a biblical one. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. um, Reba. Um, I think another thing that's really important to remember about children is that they're extremely needy. And I think that's what God calls us to be, especially in prayer. Um, I think about not only did Michael the archangel not, you know, act on his own. Jesus didn't even. He said that, you know, I can do nothing without my father. My doctrine comes from my father. You know, he never acted dependently of his father. And I think that, you know, when you look back even to the Garden of Eden, that's what got us in trouble is that we were trying to act dependently, independently from God. (laughs) Wow. Great point, Reva. Absolutely. The neediness of the child is certainly part of it as well. Absolutely. We're dependent upon him for all things. In him, we live, we move, and we have our being. We're dependent upon him for life, for existence. Absolutely. And um, no, that's very, very well said. Yes, Tom. Yeah, we're on the topic here of angels. And uh, when we looked at Jude verse 6, about the angels who did not keep their own domain. You made the statement about they became human or or took on bodies. Could you explain that? Yeah, so in in Jude 6, what we have is they didn't keep their own domain, but they had these physical relations with these women. And so that ends up leading to what's called the Nephilim. And we read about this in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So here what we're given in some sense is divine commentary in the New Testament about what it meant that the sons of God went into the daughters of men in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that's why I really focused hard on some of the grammar, which in verse 7 where he says, just as and in the same way. Because those two phrases show us that just as Sodom and Gomorrah entered into pornea, sexual immorality, these angels did. So now it's not Eric Dalma who says that in Genesis 6, the sons of God going into the daughters of men were angels procreating with women. Now we have Jude, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's telling us that's exactly what happened. And so in some sense, Satan has a bastard race. He is trying to pervert the seed promise. And this accounts to, as to why then Canaan is to be completely obliterated. This explains why the flood comes, because there's this perversion that comes upon the world. What's interesting is when you look at the secular cultures of the world, um, how many have ever heard of the Battle of the Titans? Well, these are angels who come down to Mount Olympus and they have physical relations with people and you have these titans, these godlike men. So even the secular cultures, they don't have the story exactly right. But just like there's secular stories about the flood, there's an element of truth that these things really happen. And so part of the biblical worldview is that these angels that fell like that, they're demons, they are now locked away in the abyss. And so in the abyss, they cannot do these things anymore. They can no longer have tangible contact. What's so fascinating is when you get to the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, I think it's Revelation 9, if I recall, they're going to be let out of the abyss again. And because why? Because the people want tangible contact with these demons that were locked away. The longing for this angelic contact and going beyond, just as Jude is talking about, never leaves the human. Okay, so I think that that's part of the issue. So does that make sense? So Jude 6 then really is affirming for us 
that these angels, however they did it, I would assume because like in Sodom and Gomorrah and those narratives in Genesis, they did appear to be human. They would take upon a body that looked human, even though they're angels, and they really had physical relations with women and brought about this issue. And so again, this isn't something we would ever think about. I wouldn't ever come up with it other than it's revealed in the scriptures. And so, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep, you got it. Very good question. Thank you. Yeah, Bob. Frankly, the only thing we know is what's revealed in Scripture. Yeah, amen. Okay. It's funny. I'm glad you said that. That's exactly where we're going to come to. In yeah. fact, Brian or uh, Bob, could one of you look up Deuteronomy 29:29? I think I have it in memory, but I want to because let's turn to that very passage. Yeah. That, in fact. We know these things because it's told to us in Scripture. Absolutely. And, Brian, while you're looking that up, remember you asked about exemplary judgment? We just read about it here. An example for those thereafter. It doesn't say it's always going to be this way. Once God's established that this is really wicked and really evil and will result in judgment, he doesn't do it over and over again. We have our example. If we don't listen to that, Judgment will come, and we were warned, but he doesn't have to do it over and over again. Amen. So just as Bob had pointed out that we are not given insight into the angelic realm um, in in the sense that we don't see what's going on. Right now, they're manipulating, doing things. We don't know what's going on. So we're not bound to, to try to see into the angelic realm and start manipulating them around. What we're bound to is what God has revealed. And we see that one of the most important worldview passages in the entire Bible is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Listen to what Moses wrote here. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Excellent. So what the Lord has not revealed, the secret things belong to the Lord alone. What the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever. Let's ask ourselves the question, Right now, is it secret as to what Michael the archangel is doing or what Satan is doing or what any demon or angel is doing? What are they doing right now? Don't know. know. Secret things. So then why would we manipulate them? We're not bound to that. Let's stay in our lane. What are we bound to? What the Lord has revealed. That's what we're bound to. Okay, so this is going to inform us what true binding and loosing is. It's what the Lord has revealed. Yes, back there, Ron. Oh, I'm sorry, we've got to get a mic to you. It's coming. Right back there. Thanks, Carly. To go along a little more with what Bob said, how much we're revealed, we're only given so much in Scripture. I think as you look into this Genesis 6 thing, one thing that so many Christians, they're they're out on the edge, but nonetheless, they're uh, using the book of Enoch at great length to explain these things. And I think that's risky because it's not Scripture, but it's used a lot nowadays. And uh, it's something we got to watch out for. Very good point. Right. Just because... Jude here is affirming some of the same elements that Enoch has doesn't mean that he validates everything of Enoch. So again, we're bound to what the scriptures tell us that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so all we know is that these events took place, but it's only what the scriptures have revealed. Absolutely. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, Brian. You asked the question, do we know what the archangel Michael's doing? Do we know what the other angels and the fallen angels, do we know what they're doing? And obviously the answer is no, we don't. But that's one act of protection from God because we don't want to know. And if we did know, like will happen in Revelation, people would be dying all over the place from heart failure. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. Well said. That's right. So what I'm going to do is build off of that Deuteronomy 29, 29. And let's get to Numbers chapter 30. I want to show you how the Jews would have understood binding. I'm going to show you a passage where binding certainly has to do what you're morally obligated to do. And we find that in Numbers chapter 30. Now here, what Moses is going to reveal is the obligations you have if you made a vow. Remember, making a vow or an oath was a very serious thing under the old covenant. And by the way, it still is. That's why Jesus reminds his disciples and commands them in Matthew 5.34 
not to make an oath, but just simply let their yes be yes and their no be no. In fact, you see the same thing in James 5.12. Okay? But what happened here is that, let's say you had a, a woman who was living in a home with her father. If she made a rash vow, her father could nullify it, and the Lord wouldn't hold it against her. And that way you wouldn't have a woman in their father's house binding her father to a vow that she made um, rashly. Okay, and the same thing. So anyway, those are the rules he's laying out here. But I want you to take note of the term binding obligation. Notice it says, Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Numbers 30, verses 2 through 4, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, we'll stop there. What's the term binding obligation? Isar. Isar. It's you're bound. Okay, so that is, if you made a vow, I will do this before the Lord, you're morally bound to do that. That's the idea of binding. So with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Verse 3, also if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself, there's Isar, by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, again the same term, and her father says, says shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. So what I want to focus on is this idea of a binding obligation. That meant you were morally bound to do that which you had made an oath to do. And this explains then why it is that Jesus says, don't make oaths, but simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because we're not the great promise keeper he is. You and I often will fall short and not able for our human frailties or because of our sin to be able to follow through on our oaths. There are some times where we are required to take oaths. For example, I believe marriage is one of those times where we make vows and the Lord sees that as a covenant, davake is the Hebrew, Genesis 2.24. They shall be joined together and become one flesh. There is where you have a unique situation where you have vows. Sometimes we're called in rare circumstances to swear an oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, right? We're to do that. We're to tell the truth, but these are rare. In other words, what Jesus warns about is saying, you know, I'm just going to go around. How many times when you were in high school did you always hear the guy say, well, I swear to God? And you'd hear it time and time again, and yet all of his swearing was just showing that he was a pagan who couldn't live up to his promises. Are you with me? So we're not to be the same way, but here the binding obligation is something that people are morally bound to, but remember, God has revealed in the scriptures what you and I are morally bound to. Yes, Brian. I like the verse, I can't recall it, but you'll know, where God swears upon himself, who's the only one That's that right. can actually keep Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore the oath by himself. Absolutely, absolutely. And we look at that in Genesis 15, the unconditional covenant, who alone walks the blood path, uh, God does, right? Absolutely. So you and I are morally bound not to the old covenant, you and I are morally bound not to some false lawgiver, not to some person's imagination, but to what? What's revealed under the new covenant. And that's what I want to turn to now. Yes, uh, Levon. Um, I think it's in Matthew when they talk about church discipline. And then it says, whatsoever you shall bind on earth. Yep, and we're coming to that very passage. Okay. Absolutely right. That's very good. That's exactly right. That's the whole point of this. Well said. So that's where we're going to come right now. What I want everyone to see is where this binding and loosing comes into the new covenant. And we see this in Matthew 16, 19, where here, right after the confession that Matthew records Peter saying of Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does Jesus say in response? He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, what I want everyone to see here is let's look at what's in red. First of all, Peter is one apostle who speaks as one who is the first among equals. So because he is the first to confess the Christ, that Christ is the Son of the living God, Jesus says this to him, not because Peter alone is going to be given the keys, but because he is the first among equals of the apostles. The apostles are those who speak bindingly 
for Christ. And when they write scripture, what they have bound morally, you and I are bound to morally. And what they say that you and I are free to do, you and I are free to do. I'm sorry, we had a comment or a question over here? Yeah, I had a question when you were speaking about vows, about Jephthah's daughter who made a vow that the first thing he saw when he got home. Um, Do you think he should have kept that? Yeah, that that ended up leading to her death. Is that correct? Yeah, he did sacrifice her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it shows the seriousness and the rashness of taking a vow. And uh, that's one of those moral conundrums, isn't it? Um, Do you sacrifice someone who's made in the image of God or do you do you uh, and, and, there, and therefore uphold the, the vow or do you violate the vow before God yeah because and, that wasn't uh, what he meant in his heart well, he didn't plan yeah. on killing his daughter but yeah but it, it shows you the seriousness and I don't want to get into that um, road right now into the uh, ethics of it but I just want to show that yes taking a vow is very serious and that's why the Lord says yeah, um, what I would want to just say about that is that that shows the seriousness of taking a vow. And that's why we shouldn't be, let's just let our yes be yes and our no be no. Um, we can always come up with conundrums in the scriptures. That was certainly an ethical one. And we can get into something. Bob and I believe in something called um, graduated absolutism. And we'll talk about that someday when it comes to doing the greater good. Um, take Rahab. She's not to lie. How many know that it's a sin to lie? But she lied and sent the people looking for the spies the other way. And in Hebrews 11, it's considered a righteous deed. So therefore, should we just go on lying? Well, you see, there's a conundrum there, isn't there? So the point is that that opens up a whole other can, but it just shows the seriousness of the vow. What do you call that? Um, Bob and I believe in something called graduated absolutism. Yeah. Uh, Norman Geisler, I think, was the one who had coined the term. Yeah, I studied ethics in uh, seminary. Yep. And... I think that the scripture tells us what's more important. Amen. And we're not just thereby throwing off all the things that God said we should do. That's right. And so that's how we deal with that. But that's pretty rare. Yeah. The bigger problem is rebelling against God when we know what we should do. Exactly. And there's no problem. We right. just don't want to do it. Right. Amen. The one thing I want to leave for all of you here before we go is I want you to see the difference between what's in red and what's in the blue. Notice whatever you bind on earth, that's to not only Peter, but the apostles. That's what we're going to be morally bound to, and that's, they are the ones who write scripture. But notice this phrase, shall have been bound in heaven. That's from God's perspective. So let's ask ourselves the question, does that mean that Peter simply says something and writes it, and therefore God is morally obligated to do what Peter wants or any of the apostles? No, the grammar... Notice the grammar here, shall have been bound. Those are future perfect passives. And the important of that is the future perfect passives prove that God's moral decisions predate that of the apostles. In other words, God's decision has already been laid out. It's already been determined in heaven. And what Jesus is revealing supernaturally and sovereignly is that his apostles, because they're going to be inspired by the Spirit, are going to reveal that which has been already decided in heaven. So when you and I are reading the scriptures and the terms of the new covenant, which you and I are morally bound to, that has already been determined in eternity past by the Father. But at a point in time, it was given to us in our Bibles by the apostles who are given the very keys of the kingdom. They're the ones who morally bind us. And so therefore, let's just conclude with this and we'll come back to this. But... What we have to ask ourselves is what are we morally bound to under the new covenant? And what are we morally free to do? And one of the concerns that I've had over the weeks and months of just kind of watching our culture and watching how Christians are interacting with the culture is where I see Christians, because they're engaged in the political realm, they end up binding one another to things that were not bound under the new covenant. That's one thing that we want to stay away from. And so simply ask yourself, is this a question of general revelation Or is it a question of divine revelation? Let me give you an example. If someone were to ask me, what is the best training aircraft to fly in? And I would give you from general revelation all the reasons why I think a Cessna 172 is the perfect airplane to learn in. But it was never, thus saith the Lord. 
It's just my opinion. The same thing can go for medical treatments. It can go for various things. We can simply give our best input based on general revelation, but we're not morally bound to it before the Lord. Whether it's vaccines, uh, whether it's various uh, issues regarding medicine, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, staying six feet away, not staying six feet away, these are all things we can determine through general revelation. And by the way, I think there are better answers and there are worse answers. We're not postmodern saying, well, who can know? But the point is we're not morally bound under the new covenant one way or the other. So if some rascal goes out and buys a P-51 Mustang to do primary training in, I think, and by the way, yeah, Rich goes like this, that's a great airplane. I would say, boy, that guy's a fool to do that as a trainer, but he's not sinning before the Lord. He's just a guy who got a lot of money. He's going to fly a P-51 for primary training. Are you with me? If someone takes the different view regarding a vaccine or regarding some medical practice, they may be wrong and it might even hurt them, but they're not sinning before the Lord. 